Good morning, everybody. Welcome to episode four of the Sativa segment. My name is Richard Chang. I am your host. So we have a very interesting guest, but before we get into that, I wanted everybody to know that this episode is fueled by, once again, Dads at Peace, which is a men's resource center uh, that I started here in Dallas, Texas about a little bit over a year ago. If you want to learn a little bit more about it, go to Dads at Peace on Facebook. Thank you so much for making the time to be on the show. Yeah, thank you, man. Thank you so much for inviting me out to be here. It's you know, it's a little rainy this morning on my way down from Oklahoma, but uh, I'm here. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, we've known each other for a while, right? Yes, sir. To give you a little con- background on me, you yep. know, I I grew up, um, my grandparents and my mother and everybody, they all came from Mexico, originally border town uh, near Del Rio, and um, they came to start a better life, you know, to present a better life for my, for their kids. And, you know, eventually that would lead down to me. And we, did you grow up in Del Rio? No, I actually grew up in Fort Worth. I was born in Fort Worth at John okay. Peter Smith hospital. And then I literally grew, grew up probably about three blocks away from that same hospital. Oh, wow. Okay. For a good chunk of my life. Okay. So it was, it was more of the, you know, impoverished neighborhoods, you know, um, there was a lot of gang violence and stuff going on there. Uh, I mean, we had gangs, gang members living across the street from my grandmother's house and being caught up in crossfire, you know, uh, drive-by shootings and stuff like that. And so, you know, it, um, eventually we, my mother was able to, uh, pull us out of that whole, um, life and she got married and we ended up moving out into the suburbs and um, going to school out there and it's kind of a hard transitional change for me from going from like the urban school to the suburban school because I wasn't really accepted well so let's talk about that you said before you you came on the show um, I kind of prepped you a little bit saying hey David how much can I ask you said I can ask anything I want sure and so I'm gonna go ahead and ask you were you part of a gang no okay. I wasn't a part of any gangs at all uh, fortunately um, I did hang out with a lot of them okay. uh, growing up but my uncles and them they never got caught up in the gang life either but even though they associated and affiliated and they would come over and hang out we never, I never got into gang affiliation, and I'm really glad I didn't. <laughs> sure. So we we go from an urban area, obviously a very different environment than a suburban area. So you made that transition. Um, what, how, how, what, what was the con- comparison and the contrast between, I guess, your friends and how your life changed when, when you made that move? It was, honestly, it was actually pretty hard because, you know, um, going into that suburban neighborhood – you everybody's kind of like somewhat kind of hoity-toity okay and so you kind of you know you got to dress nice you know if you don't have these certain clothes and everybody looks at you like you know you're almost like don't exist or you know you have the social acceptance was pretty hard and challenging for me I don't think I fared very well in that environment I mean even at one point (laughs) it got so bad that uh uh, one year, I think it was my fifth grade year. Like I got into a fight with one kid and then before I know it, I end up on the ground and like half the school in my grade is like kicking me while I'm on the ground. Okay. You know, and I feel like a lot of that had to do with the fact that I was just this kid from a different, I, I didn't grow up around all these other kids and the girls, you know, took to me because I was a new guy. So I think that was a lot of what I dealt with, too, as well, because girls were interested in me being a new guy. And uh, the guys that were there, popular, whatever you want to call it, didn't take to me very well because that attention came to towards me and not them. Well, there was a new rooster in town. Basically. Yeah. So, you know, it wasn't until I went back to – I started going back in – I was in Crowley originally, and then I started going back to Fort Worth schools after my mother went through a divorce. And um, that was pretty hard for me, that divorce, because it was also the time that I realized, uh, well, my mother had told me that my father wasn't my real father. 
And so that was a really hard thing for, for me to deal with and cope with. And looking back in my life, that was probably like the second point in my life that um, I realized I had problems. Co- didn't know how to cope how with these things. How old were you things. around this time? So that would have been, let's see, that was middle school. It was like sixth grade year, so I might have been like 12. Okay. So you were 12, and you were entering into your teenage years. This is preteen. Right. Let's, let's, um, when did you get involved with cannabis? Cannabis started back when I was a little bit younger, um, seven. Okay, so this is, this is the interesting part, right? I mean, is that you were introduced to cannabis at a very young age, right. arguably around first grade, Yeah. right? Yeah. So between first grade and eighth grade, or I guess um, around seventh six, grade, sixth six yeah. or seventh grade. So for those five, six, seven years, were you using pot or did you see other people use pot? I, saw, I, I mostly saw the consumption of pot in between okay. that time period. When I, at seven years old, it was actually the first time that I ever took a hit of cannabis. Okay. And I used to bug my uncles all the time. Like for me, my attraction to cannabis was always the smell. Going back as a kid, I remember clear as day, my uncle and them would be hanging out on the porch with their friends mm. and they're partying and drinking and they were smoking. Right. Well, I thought the smoking was just part of, you know, like cigarettes, but I always found it really unique and interesting that what they were smoking had this very, very distinct smell that strangely enough, being that young, I found really attractive. Did they tell you, hey, David, this is an illegal drug or. No, they just told me that there was something that they that it wasn't for me that you know that uh you're too you're too young for this so they did try to deter you from it they did they did and me being the pursuant little brat that i was back then because i was an only child i was pretty persistent till finally um it wasn't my uncle it was my uncle's friend that actually let me take a puff okay so it was a friend of the family that right that handed you the joint. Right. You took a puff. Right. Now, at age seven, did you consistently use it in the next however many no, years? No, that was it, after that. It was just kind of like, huh, okay. I think I was too young, really, to understand what what it was that was going on. I just knew that at that time I was really desiring the smell. So when I smoked for the first time, I don't ever actually remember like being high. You know, and I probably was, and I know they were getting a good laugh of me, you know, after the fact, but it wasn't until when I got into middle school, high school and started consuming more because uh, a lot of that was influenced by the peers that were around me at the time and growing up, you know, people were, were smoking too and skipping school. You know, when we got into high school, it's kind of, kind of the path that I started going down. And a lot of that had to do with because I was dealing with some uh, was dealing with some verbal abuse um, at home with my stepfather at the time, mm-hmm. and so he I didn't know it till after the fact, but he was he turned it out he turned out to be um, pretty racist and very controlling, and I don't know how my mom totally missed that, but you know we were kind of subjected there for a few years to. Um, I'd say a lot of torture in a sense. Okay. Because he was trying to come in and and make things his own. And my mother was so independent and had been strong on, you know, doing things for herself that she just wasn't really trying to give everything over to, you know, to somebody. Was there domestic abuse? Um, It was mostly, I wouldn't say physical. I never actually saw it. It did get physical between me and him. But it never, I never saw any physical between him and my mother. And that was, that was pretty hard on me, you know, because I, at that time, I'm in high school. So, you know, it only kicked in my rebellion even more. Mm. And to, you know, to the point to where at one point I felt like my mother was choosing him over me. So that was a whole nother um, situation that I had a hard time dealing and coping with. And so I started 
I guess you can say acting out and going and doing things, things that I wasn't proud of, you know, doing, you know, drugs, hard drugs and hanging out with all those uh, hard social circles and just trying to, I guess, in a way, kind of hurt myself, you know, but like numb everything else that's going on around me. And I'd like to try to say that I tried to take my own life, but I never really attempted. I mean, I did attempt a couple once, not a couple, but once. And, but it was very foolish, very foolish. And I, you know, the moment I started to try to going down that path is when I realized like, what the heck are you doing? Right. <laughs> you know, that, and that must've been a really dark time for you. Yeah. Right. It was probably the darkest time in my life in that, in that era, you know, from like about 16 to about 22 was, was probably the darkest, lowest part of my life. And, um, it, it took a lot to, to get out of that, you know, um, I had to really look within myself because I was too embarrassed to talk about any of the things that I experienced. I didn't want to talk about any of it, you know, um, and so I had to dig within myself and like figure these things out. So I didn't go to no psychiatrist, no psychologist. I didn't do therapy or anything. I, I bravely tried to do this all on my own and I feel like I was successful at it because here I am now standing before you or sitting with you talking with you now and there's a lot of good things that have come out of that you know it's like a it's like my stock you know hit the bottom sure and now I'm bouncing back and I've been only going up with occasional drops here and there but nothing as low as that was in my life so you know obviously you've had some challenges um be a family your mother telling you about um, your uh, your dad's situation, your stepdad consuming drugs. When did that transition over um, to, because this is what you told me, is that you've dealt drugs. Yeah. You've sold. Yeah. You've, you've uh, have, have you trafficked? Have you gone across state lines? I have. Okay. I did. So, I mean, these are... This, honestly, this episode is really talking about some really hard issues, right? Of that course. It's not just you. It's uh, millions of Americans yeah, who yeah. have faced similar situations. But I really want to probe and tr kind of dig this out in that you have had a criminal past. You're a convicted felon. Yes, sir. Okay. So when did you start, when did you start selling? When did you start dealing? You know, that was, that was in the dark ages for me. So it's probably about 16, 17 years old. You know, I started... I started more on the hardcore drugs side of things. You know, there was, um, you know, uh, methamphetamines was kind of was big at the t at that time. And okay, so you didn't deal just cannabis, right? It was other stuff as in was addition a, to cannabis. Yeah. Okay, yeah, I, I, I like I, I'm not proud of it, but you know, it's the path that I that I went down, and you know, I'm. In a way, I'm glad that I did go down those paths and hang out with all those different social circles because in doing that, because I already knew somewhere deep down inside, this isn't who I was, but I had to go through all those situations sure. in order to see and like recognize like, nope, not this circle. Nope, not this circle, you know. It was trial and error for you. <clears throat> it was. It was very trial and error because I didn't have a father figure in my life. I, I didn't know who my father was. You know You know what I mean? So, yeah. no, I didn't have that, nobody to lay those, those things out for me. My uncles were caught up in alcoholism and drugs themselves. And my grandfather was probably about, was the only light in my life that I had because he was constantly going to work every day, putting food on the table, you know, doing what looking back to me felt like he was trying to, you know, create this opportunity for his family. Right. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's been a very challenging in, in that sense, trying to come out of that because when you're going through that, a lot of times you're, you've got, you know, you've got like the good thing and the bad thing on your shoulder and like, 
your own, you can be your own worst enemy. And I think that was part of my struggle is that I was my own worst enemy while trying to help myself get through all of this. And I just got to that point to where I, I saw like, I don't want to be a part of these things anymore. I see the, the devastating effect that it's having in other people's lives. And consciously, I just couldn't live consciously like that, knowing that I was contributing to that. And through all of that, Cannabis uh, was one of the two drugs that stuck out to me that the social circles were a lot more, um, they were more unified than they were every person for themselves. So you start- It was a community. It was, a, yeah, I saw more community within cannabis, um, ecstasy, MDMA, and uh, hallucinogens, uh, LSD, and mushrooms. Is it because um, there were just more people who created more dialogues, uh, dialogue amongst each other? Or yeah. People, tell me about that. People were willing to talk more about it, you know, and people were open more about their experiences. And I saw more um, fellowship and, like, trying to make, you know, care for people in a manner where – you know, whether it's, uh, oh, you took too much or like, you know, here, we're here to help you, you know, like with ecstasy, you know, you, you take ecstasy and like, you know, you definitely want some kind of supervision or you want to be around a group of people that you can trust, you know, because sometimes you can go into a state that like doesn't seem like reality. Right. And when you're trying to find yourself in that, you need to have other people around that you can trust sure right so, so let's let's transition back to the uh, to the to the selling um, right who are you selling it to and how did you get your supply are we talking about cannabis yeah we're talking about let's just stick with cannabis for right now okay so you know with cannabis for me i i really started getting into cannabis right after the tail end when california had just went um uh medically legal okay and I was... This is around 96. Yeah, it's around 96, 97. So it's in, when I'm in high school. And it wasn't until like the tail end of high school that I said, I, you know what? I want to start trying to sell weed to people, but I want to sell something that's different, right? Because everything that I see is all brick weed, you know, Mex weed from Mexico. Like I want to get access to this stuff that's coming from California. And... Um, being involved in those social circles, I eventually met somebody that was in that social circle. And I was I was doing some other things at the time that I'm not too proud of, excuse me, um, that led me into dealing cannabis because somebody saw me and gave me the opportunity and presented me with basically an ounce and was like, hey, do you think you can sell this? And it was beautiful weed and it smelled great and i know i know what good weed looks like compared okay. to bad weed and tell me, how do you tell good weed between, between good and bad i mean the biggest thing for me is like what i told you my first encounter with cannabis was the smell okay so it's is it the terpenes it a lot of it was terpenes okay. and then look you know the coloration yeah the coloration okay. you know how fluffy it was versus you know back then where i was coming from it was mostly always brick weed very seldom would you get some stuff from mexico that actually was nice full buds and not all squished and compressed mm -hmm. and so you know seeing seeing it like that it's like oh we're going from this to that it's it's night and day can you tell how strong weed is by looking at it no you can't you cannot can you tell if there's something wrong with it just by, or do you, by the looks of it, or do you need really like a, like a lab analysis? You know, back then, because we didn't have lab analysis, you, it was, it was, it was kind of like the roll of the dice, right? Yeah. So that's why it was really important to go off of smell and look, right? Because that was, if, if it smelled good mm -hmm. and it looked good, chances are it was created and made good and you would see the fluctuations of that when 
you know, I would get people would bring me different stuff and I'd be like, ah, and they'd want me to pay the same price point that I was paying for something that was really good. And, you know, then they'd give me the lower price point and sure, fine, I'll take it. And then I go and take it and I go and sell it out to my friends and I'm, yeah, I'm giving it to them for a lower price, but they're like, man, that other stuff that you got was amazing. And so it has to do with a lot of feedback, right? Okay. You know, and because, so is it, is because it me as a seller, right? I don't want to go and continue. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be in business long if I continue to sell, you know, bunk crap, basically. That's right. right because, I mean, you, right? essentially, I mean, it's the black market, but you right. have a brand in yourself, right? It's, I mean, exactly. It's, it's, it's within that community that you're talking about. Exactly. You do have a brand. It, it's, it's, it's essentially bad PR. So. It's, 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 mo it's your name is your, is your credibility, yeah. you know? So if everybody knows that Flores doesn't have, you know, good weed, you know, so-and-so's got the good weed. With me, it was always, Flores always got the good weed. He doesn't charge the highest price and he doesn't and give you the lowest price he gives you that price right in the middle mm -hmm. and it's consistent throughout okay so, so okay that's kind of how i i i set my you know my little business model at that time when i was doing things and as i continued to do that and i saw people were coming back and giving me that feedback that's when i really kind of started looking into more of like you know studying this plant more you know studying the botany of it studying you know how it grows, where it came from, the history of it. And that's when I really started catching the bug for it. And that's how I started getting out of this, all of these other bad social circles. Between cannabis and hip-hop culture, those are the two things that saved my life. So would you say hip-hop culture and cannabis has a close affinity towards each other? Absolutely, 100%, because okay. there's a lot of cannabis consumption going on within the hip-hop culture. Okay. So... You really became a student of the industry. Yes. You 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 became a connoisseur of both growing and identifying what's quality and what's not quality. You right. are, you you sold, right. so you derived revenue from it. Now let's talk about your your convictions. Right, you're a convicted felon. Yes, sir. There's no hiding it. You are a convicted felon. You are a past criminal. Yes, sir. How long were you in jail? Um. Well, I've been to prison twice. Okay. So the first, this, this last time, which I got out in 2015, I did 18 months on a three-year sentence. Okay. And then, and then the remainder time I was on parole. So what, I mean, you said twice. So what was the first stint? The first stint was only 11 months. Uh, it was a state jail felony. So, but I had to do day for day on that. So I didn't get out on any parole or anything like that. I did 11 months straight. 11 months. And then the second time was a three-year sentence. A three-year sentence. And, but you only did 18 months. Yes. Okay. Correct. Were both, were, were both stints because of cannabis charges? Yeah, they were possession charges. Possession charges. Yeah, yeah, possession of cannabis, uh, all behind the wheel. So I never, got, I never got caught up for any of my cultivation that I did in Texas for, you know. For, so you were never charged with selling. No. I you didn't. were so you you were just simply um, I did basically I did that all under the radar for from my teenage years to about 28. 28 was when I caught my first felony. Okay, so we're looking at 11 months plus 18 months. So we're looking at 29 months of jail time. Yeah. For just possession. Just possession. What are your thoughts on the the recent pardoning by President Biden? Um, I, I, I think it's definitely a good small step in that okay. direction. You know, it helps anybody who's gotten federal, uh, possession charges. He didn't, he didn't pardon the people who got convicted for selling or right. trafficking. Right. He pardoned the people for possession. possession. Correct. So you did 29 months. He pardoned a bunch of people for arguably the same crime that you got convicted for that you did two cents for. Right. Okay. But so on, a you, on, a federal, on a federal level compared to a state level. Okay. Uh, were, were both your state levels here in Texas or was it in Oklahoma? They're in Texas. They're in Texas? Okay. Uh, were they at the same jail? Same, same uh, facility? No, I went to two different facilities. Tell me about that. T tell me about your experience in jail. Man, it was traumatizing. Yeah. It was very traumatizing. The first time I went down and did those 11 months, it was also the same year, I believe it was 2010, where we had 
Um, it was over, I believe it was like 40 something days of triple degree digit weather. And in these, in these prisons that they have, these facilities at the time, they, uh, they didn't have, uh, uh, swamp coolers or water coolers in there. Now they have them because after that, that year, uh, they had multiple deaths across all these units because there wasn't enough air circulation and airflow in there. And so I spent my time in there basically in a hot box that was so hot that it was it was there was nothing but humidity all in there it was like 120 degrees every day straight they would only bring in one five gallon uh jug of water with ice a day sometimes we wouldn't get that and it would create a lot of unease and tension when you're in a room with 64 other inmates and um it was torture, man. It was one of the most dreadful things that I have ever experienced in my whole entire life. And it was extremely traumatizing. Very, very, very traumatizing. In your, in your cell, did you have to share? I didn't have my own cell. They basically had us in a big dorm. So okay. you had a big dorm and then you had like these cupboards, okay. these little cupboards. And it was me and one other, actually me and three other inmates in one cupboard. And so again, it was so hot in there and it's so humid. I was I was stripped down to my clothes and literally I was still just drenched in sweat. I'd be wow. walking I'd be walking around in this day room and there there was like real literally no air circulation. There was one fan moving, one exhaust fan moving. Mm-hmm. And you could go and take a shower, right? But they kept the shower so hot. That as soon as you got out of the shower, you were immediately sweating. So it was just completely dreadful the whole entire time. Did you ever feel like your life was in danger or that you were ever in danger in while you were in jail? I never felt like I was in danger. And that was kind of a bad thing because I got into several fights while I was there because I wasn't going to put up with no shit from anybody. Excuse my language. Um, but, um, I just knew that I was willing to stand my ground and I had other friends at the time who had done prison time that sat me down and kind of like prepped me. And so I tried to do the best to follow those guidelines, um, without causing too much uh, trouble for myself along the way. Got it. Okay. Um, so let's transition into the industry. So we've, we've touched on your, your personal life. Obviously there were, we talked about some dark moments. Um, we talked about your past convictions, how you got into cannabis. What are your thoughts about the industry now? It's very different than when you got into it. Now, 19 states have, uh, some form to different degrees of adult use. Many other states that do not have adult use, such as Oklahoma, which is where you are, um, only has medical. What are your thoughts about the evolution of this industry from where you started to where it is today, from your perspective? I'm really happy to see it come this way. When, when I decided to get involved in the selling aspect of it, I saw the benefit of it. I mean, the main reason why I got into it was because obviously there was good money to be made. But the secondary behind that, that I, that I picked up was I saw how it was helping other people in, in their lives based on their, their reactions and their, their feedback that they came back and, and, and gave me. And so that's what really got me hooked on was like, wow, this this really can help people in a lot of different ways. And that's when I started studying it more. And I thought to myself, this can be an industry for sure. It needs to be like, this is crazy. This is heinous. And, you know, we're in early two thousands and I see what's going on in California. And I'm like, wow, I can't wait for that to actually start, you know, making its way across the nation and hopefully here in Texas. So how did you respond when, 2012 hit and Colorado became the first state to legalize adult use. Did you have, you know, any thoughts about moving out to Cal to I'm sorry to Colorado or did you have any 
I yes, I that. did. Um, unfortunately, at that time, because I was a convicted felon by then, by the time I yep. caught the bug of like, okay, I do want to step into this. I want to work in the industry, like legitimately, you know, and legally. And when I started doing that, then I that's when I started running into these these fences or these brick walls, as you would we would say, is basically, hey, you know we got a 10 year statute of limitations on felons. You can't work in our industry. Okay. And so, so there I, were some other challenges. Yeah. Too. Those what, were some major challenges that I faced trying to get into the industry that basically since then, up until about two or three years ago, I decided to just do a lot of, um, investing in myself. You know, um, I went to, I, did an online program called the, I think it's called TCMI, the Cannabis Medical Institute. And um, that was also the same time that my mother was going through cancer. Mm. And so um, I wanted to know more about the plant from that standpoint. And so I started educating myself more. I started going to conferences more, you know, basically trying to do all the groundwork and the prep work of when I did hit my 10 year mark that mm -hmm. I would be pretty suited up and educated and like grounded within what the legal industry looks like. Have you hit your 10, 10 year mark yet? This 2023 will be my 10 year mark. Well, congrats, early congratulations. Yes. Thanks. Um, so it sounds like you have some family connections to on the medical side. Yes. Um, you know, obviously you consumed, you were obviously selling, but now the industry is completely different, man. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you have certain states that have very broad medical programs with 30 plus qualifying conditions. You have some that have, you know, just a handful. Um, how have you seen uh, through your personal experiences how cannabis has affected people um, in their lives from a medical standpoint, because it does sound like you have some knowledge on the medical aspects of it, not just selling from the, right. you know, in the black market and not just consuming uh, through recreational purposes, but you are involved on the medical side as well. I appreciate you identifying that too, Richard, because, uh, you know, that was something that I early on, I recognize that, you know, when I tried to talk to professionals and tell them, tell them where, or who I am, where I came from, I didn't get very much uh, recognition or, you know, um, generating conversations. It wasn't until I actually started going to conferences, educating myself more and speaking more on that platform um, did people start taking me more serious and wanting to look at me more as, as an industry professional and not just some black market grower. Yeah. And so, yeah, you know, when I first moved out to Oklahoma, you know, I went out to Oklahoma because Oklahoma only had a five-year statute of limitations on convicted felons. Okay. And I had met that qualification just this last year. So when I went out there, I went out to manage a dispensary. And so I was very, very adamant about being patient-driven and trying to help patients dial in what works for them and, you know, educating them. Uh, with content, I would make sure that they would leave with papers educating on them on the different cannabinoids in the plant and the different terpenes in the plant because I wanted people to, I wanted patients there to understand that it's not all about the THC and that there's these other important compounds that are just as uh, beneficial as THC um, that can be helpful to you. And once you start looking at the analysis or the, the certificate of analysis of what it is you're consuming, you can start dialing in and seeing, oh, well, this worked for me because it had CBN, CBG, THCV, mm. you know, it had, you know, the myrcene, terpenaline, osamine, it had these different combinations. And so that when I started doing that with patients and educating them from that standpoint, I started noticing in the dispensaries, patients coming back and actually uh, finding more consistency in the products that they were using. Right. And I think we've really just scratched the surface in this industry on the studies of the different cannabinoids and what it does medically, right? Yes, sir. You mentioned CBN, CBG, 
I think it wasn't too long ago that did the study on CBG, or maybe it was CBN, it was one of those, um, that it had a direct link to sleep patterns. CBN. CBN? Okay. Yeah. See, I'm just a, I'm just a lawyer, man. I, so I, I'm, I am not the chemist. So um, Neither am I. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's interesting how much th this industry has evolved, right? right? And so if I were to ask you right now, because the industry is what it is, it's regulated. What is it that you're doing differently? Or how is it different uh, now for you compared to before when it was just the black market? And we talked about this, yeah, right? Yeah, you know, the, the thing is Would back, you be doing anything different? Well, back then it was like, oh man, this stuff is really bomb. I can't wait for you. Smell this, right? Smell it. And usually that was the selling point. Once they smelled it and was like, oh my gosh, and then looked at it and was like, oh my gosh, like this has to be, this has to be great quality, you know, flower. Now you're talking about, you're in a market where like, it's kind of half and half, but like you have more consistency of good product to choose from, mm -hmm. right? To whereas back then, you know, you only had maybe two or three different strains to be able to choose from based on who your dealer was and sometimes you only had one strain right right well in this market you have all the, the all the strains out there that you have access to you know and so it's it's like a huge overload and but it's good for the patient though because it allows them access to everything and you know because obviously we're we don't have those studies out yet we're you know we're doing a lot of anecdotal um, studies, you know, based well, on technology has changed the industry a lot, right? You know, technology and science and how you're able to conduct, um, analysis of the, uh, or the compounds and, and the different substances. So it, it we're operating in a, in a regulated regime now it's a regulated framework compared to before, but as part of a regulated framework, it also leads to additional costs yep. and additional costs trickles down downstream to the end user. So, you know, really, what are your thoughts on the fact that before when it was the, the illegal market, people can grow it for a fraction of the cost. Right. Now you can't because right. you have to have all in Oklahoma, you have to use metric to for for, for tracking purposes. Right? right. You have software, you have different um, tools for analysis. So that increases the cost that increases the cost for um, for, for the uh, for, for the for the grower, for the for the processing portion, for the retailers, thereby the, the cost will eventually trickle down to the end user. You know, for me, the biggest thing that, you know, you, you some, this, this is some of the conversations that I have with some of my friends that are still caught up in the black market, right? They don't want to transition over into the legal market because I'm not making the same amount that I would make mm. here in this market. Well, I always tell them, hey, bro, I'm tired of looking over my shoulder. I am done with that. Now that I have this opportunity to work in this industry legitimately and I don't have my felonies aren't holding me back anymore, I will take less in order to be able to work and do what it is I know that I'm capable of doing, what I'm great at doing, and not have to worry about fear of being persecuted for it. Right. And so that's really the cost for peace of mind. Absolutely. It's it's totally worth that cost. And yep. at the end of the day, I can say, yes, I'm doing this legally. Yes, I'm paying my taxes. Yep. Like, you know, I don't have those things to worry about anymore. Sure. And at the end of the day, after you've been through what I've been through and other many other people like me, it's worth the trade-off. Well, they haven't been in the uh, communal living with, you know, 100-degree weather and, you know, the stuff that you've experienced, right? right. So um, I think that may change your mind if, when, if you've experienced that. Um, so, you know, we've worked together on a few things. You, yeah, you, you mentioned the, the Oklahoma market. You managed this, this, um, this grow operations. So, yeah, I went from, I went from the dispensary, uh, dispensary manager, managing the dispensary into doing a grow operations um, which you were really helpful out and all helping me get in the whole business 
outline structured for that because at the time I wasn't able to get a license yet because of the five-year limitations. Sure. And so, you know, you were, man, I was pretty amazed when I called you up that day and I was like, Richard, our license got rejected because of this right here and, you know, help us out. You literally made a phone call and within 24, 36 hours, our license was approved. Well, I'm glad I could help you out in that situation, so, but you know, you, you guys deserve that license. Yeah. So. You, well, and I appreciate your help on, on, on helping some people that I was working with to get that license because they themselves, they didn't really know how to pursue that. And they were struggling themselves on um, wanting to pay for a lawyer to do that, which, you know, I told you, which is why I went ahead and paid for it. Sure. Because I wanted to get this stuff clear out the way. Things didn't work out too well there. You know, um, it just, the operators had a different vision in mind and the partner that I was with um, had, a, had a different vision from what we originally said we were going to go. And so, you know, um, we went and got that first season out the mm -hmm. way, which was last season. And then I, um, I kind of, Started working back in, in Dallas for a little bit, and then I got presented uh, with another friend of mine who's been in the um, in the industry as long as I have, longer, and um, he had an operation going out there and asked if uh, I'd be willing to come out and work with him and help, his, help him run his operations. And so I saw that as a good opportunity um, to take that on as a learning experience firsthand sure. um, on top of what I just went through because I wanted to have my own license. I wanted to be my own operator, right? And eventually I ended up getting my own license. I haven't really told anybody this yet. I guess this would be, be like my first public announcement of me having my own grow license. But I only got the license because of the two-year moratorium that uh, Oklahoma had put and so I wanted to have that license for when I was actually ready to seek investment and actually pull the trigger and so this me working with Gas Giant now has I feel like given me a huge advantageous um, lane to be able to go through everything firsthand I'm basically being paid to learn how to run my own business yeah, I mean, what the thing is, you 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 went through a series of that though. Yes. Um, I mean, when you and I started working on that, um, the license that you referenced earlier, you were really essentially a management company hired to come in to help with the cultivation aspect of it. It clearly didn't work out. Um, right. There were some, I guess we'll just leave it as incongruent objectives, right? Or yes. it just wasn't a good fit. You you left that venture. And you joined Gas Giants and with a gentleman that, as you referenced earlier, that has arguably more growing experience than you do. But he yeah. already has a grow operations and you're now operating that grow facility for him. What are some of the challenges with growing? Tell me about the grow aspect of it. Um, what, what's involved with growing in, the, in a growing operations? Man, you know, a lot of it is sticking to your schedule and your time. You know, the you have you have your SOPs and they're pretty they're pretty standard. You know, everything. Mm -hmm. Once you have the system in place, it's just really about making sure that you are operating in a manner that doesn't allow outs. Like right now, Gas Giant is all indoor cultivation, mm -hmm. right? So. When I came in, the processes were already in place. At this point, it's all about maintaining that, you know, so making sure that we're, you know, no pests are coming in, making sure that, you know, we're not allowing um, the plants to get overwatered and, you know, suffer from root rot or disease. You know, there's, there's these little finite details that once... Once the operation's going, you just really have to stay on top of all these little details. You know, a light may go out. You know, you have to replace that light. We're in LED now, so lights last longer compared to, you know, uh, HPS lights where you have to constantly change those out. 
does the does the uh, the plant or the quality of the plant get altered by using LED versus sunlight or different types of light? Does it affect the 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 the, the outcome of the plant? Man, yes, definitely. That and that that is a whole another whole another avenue and rabbit hole. Just because you're talking about different spectrums, you're talking about uh, different quality of you know um, dioids that are in these products. You know, um, it's, you definitely have to do a lot of due diligence, uh, and a lot of questioning when you're going mm -hmm. and like, say, picking out lights and stuff like that, because there, there are certain things that you're looking for, like as a cultivator, you know, I don't, I'm not going to give too much in specifics, but you know, there are certain things as a cultivator when it comes to lighting that you're looking for and you all these different lighting companies have different lighting spectrums. Some actually even do custom lighting spectrums for you, which is a really great thing when you're, you know, have a certain plant or you're working with certain strains that you want consistency in. Things like that can help that consistency when you know those little details. Okay. So walk me through the grow process though i mean this is the fun part right? are you using actual seeds or do you using seedlings or so we how do, do you so how we do, do you get your hands on it we do both right so over at gas giant you know marcus is one of the few people in the world that has went down to he's went to the regions these land race regions he went to south africa and he went and found the durban poison and the swaziland goat and he's brought he's brought those Swaz, the swaziland and durban back to and those are names of the seeds yes because they're from those regions okay and so he's used those they're basically high sativas and he's used that as a breeding program to breed into other genetics that are circulating here in the space so in this operation it's seeds but then once we get our our mothers and our and our actual the best strains from each of those seeds, our cultivars. Um, from there, we'll go and use the cloning process, right? So we grow seeds to do the sifting process and find out, find which ones are the best ones or meet the criteria that we're How do you grow for. seeds? I mean, when you, in basic agriculture, you start off with the seed, but help me understand how you grow a seed. It's real simple with cannabis. You can, there's multiple ways to go about it, but you know, one, Two of the ways that I've usually done it consistently in the past and how we're, we've done it now is we'll, you know, we'll either put them in straight water okay. and allow, and within 48 hours, the whole of the seed will crack and you'll start to see the little, the roots, the root come out of it. Okay. That's one way to do it. And then from there you go into whatever your medium is. If it's rock wool, if it's cocoa, if it's soil, you know, you can go transition from that point and that starts the growing process. Another process is, you know, a lot of people use the paper towel method and, you know, they'll fold a paper towel up, mm, they'll okay. put the seeds inside there, cover it up, wet the paper towel, put it inside of a, um, into a little plastic bag. And then within 48 hours, it does the same thing. You'll start seeing the little root pop out. And then that's when you go into the transition phase. Wow. So, okay. So that's usually the beginning point. It's, it's. It's somewhat fairly simple, but it's also complicated too because you're you're looking for things within that when it's doing that process because it also you're looking for signs of how strong the plant is, how vigorous it is, and it starts by observing at at that early stage, and then it follows all the way through. So how do you how do you clone? Tell me about that. I mean, what, because you told me about the germination process and the, the growth. So, yeah, seeds. it's like I was saying, you know, once you transplant that seedling into whatever the medium is that you're going into, um, it's, you're, you'll grow that up for, you know, it, it can be four weeks, six weeks, nine weeks, and eventually the plant will start getting big enough to where you can go and propagate it. Okay. Which means I can go and take a stem, you know, like mm -hmm. a six or seven inch stem, take a cutting off of it dip it in some rooting hormone and then put it in like a rock wool cube or, or something of that nature, a rapid rooter. And within 14 days, uh, putting it within its own little dome and giving it its own little greenhouse. That's right. Uh, within 14 days, you'll just start seeing roots pop out up from that plant. 
and then it basically is turned into a plant that you can use and and put into the flowering cycle again you can use that clone to clone more and more and more yeah you can you can uh, the problem there sometimes what ends up happening is is if you if you don't clone off of good clones the the genetic uh, vigor and strength can a lot of times decline i was just going to ask you about that right like do you, like, do you have to it's and kind so of like making the, a copy of a copy, right? Right. So. right. And so there are ways of resetting the hormones in the plant, okay. right, to be able to get that plant back to its original state of what it was before it started to decline. So it sounds like your the goal was to get back to the original mother plant that you originally cloned off. Right, of. um, right. Because each clone, if you don't manage it right, it can alter the THC level and everything else, right? right. Exactly. Okay. So let's talk a little bit. Let's get away from Gas Giant a little bit. Let's talk about your endeavor. Mm-hmm. Now, you actually have a license now, and your uh, company is called? Supreme Flores. Supreme Flores. Yes, and sir. it's based in Oklahoma. Oklahoma. And you have a partner. There. Yes. And so Oklahoma, as um, you know, it, they have some restrictions on how much you can own. Right. You have to be a Oklahoma resident to own. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. You have to, if you're an out of state resident, you can own up to 25% of the company. Correct. Until you meet certain thresholds. Right. Have you met that threshold yet? My threshold comes next month. Oh, okay. So now, come next month, you don't have any restrictions. I don't have any restrictions. Okay. Um, so tell me about Supreme Flores. So Supreme Flores, you know, the, the goal with Supreme Flores is I want, to do contract growing, okay, um, brand fulfillment for other companies. What does that mean? Tell, tell me what brand fulfillment means. So, f- example like Cookies, okay? Um, cookies has a brand, right? Well, Cookies doesn't necessarily grow their own weed. They contract other growers to grow their weed for them. Mm-hmm. And what they do is they provide the genetics. And I think you're familiar with this because I think Cookies was even a client of yours. They are, yes. Um, so uh, just using that as an example, um, I thought at one point I wanted to try and build a brand, but given the fact that um, states like California and basically the whole Pacific Northwest has already on top of that, I, I, saw the, I saw it being more advantageous to do brand fulfillment that way because – That'll get the money rolling faster in the operations to have those agreements already worked out with people. And then I don't have to worry about going and selling stuff out into the market. You know, I'm not going to get the same price that I would going and sell into it, but I'm guaranteed that my crop is gone and sold every single time. So just to um, circle back with that understanding is like a company like an MSO right. would buy essentially from Supreme Flores. Right. You would be uh, a supplier for, an, uh, by the way, MSO, for those of you who are watching out there, it stands for multi-state operator. So a multi-state operator will come in and say, hey, David, we would like to buy X amount of plant from you. Right. Uh, and you would sell. And hopefully you land a good contract, right? Right. At premium prices. Right. Uh, and that becomes a source of revenue for you. Right. And, and obviously as you grow, you're hoping to land other MSOs as a client. That, well, that and then, you know, I I really do pride myself on the genetics that I've, I myself have been collecting throughout sure. all these years. And so there is a part of me that wants to be able to put out my own craft flower in the market. Okay. Because um, the model behind that is more of like the wine model, right? And so that's another vertical that if I can get my contract going in and get get the revenue generating, then I'll start looking into possibly putting out a a craft brand, real small, small batch. Um, And then another vertical that I'm interested in doing is – this is a little bit more challenging, but I'd like to try to get into the real medical side of this and like working with doctors and physicians, you know, and trying to find a doctor or a physician or somebody who's interested in running a, a dispensary and approaching it from a mm-hmm. med- a real medical standpoint and uh, getting into 
gathering that data and actually doing independent studies and mm-hmm. getting into trials and things of that. Now you're speaking the language of the world I came out of. Right. Or I, technically, I didn't come out of anything. I came into the cannabis industry from the healthcare side, right? Right. And so um, now I'm starting to see the two worlds collide. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're looking at clinical studies. You're looking at efficacy of data. Um, and in California, there's even limitations on how physicians um, can have a financial interest in dispensaries. Mm-hmm. And that falls in line with um, the healthcare world and how physicians can have certain financial relationships and ownership of ancillary businesses. Right. Will, right. And so the two worlds are obviously starting to mesh. You're, you just express some interest into diving into some other verticals. Is it, are those the two primary verticals that you want, you're interested in once, uh, assuming Supreme Floors takes off, you, you generate revenue, obviously. It takes money to make money. Of course. Um, and then Project One is the, uh, the, the I guess, the, uh, um, the specialized or craft flowers, right? Right. Um, how, how did you decide that you want to do that? Well, I, um, I decided I wanted to do that just because it's cannabis from a recreational adult use standpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was kind of the avenue that I wanted to choose to bring something that I know when people, people who know me in the space would more likely support that because it's bringing something different to the table compared to everybody else. Uh, you know, my experience um, that I'm looking to bring in that craft product has a lot to do with the smell mm-hmm. and the taste because that influences the experience that you have. Okay. And that's yeah. what I'm using to drive that right. cra- that particular craft pr- product Okay. because I have access to genetics that not everybody has access to that allows me to carve that niche out for myself. Well, because right now Oklahoma is just medical. It's not an adult use state. Is it, it operates like almost like because a recreation. you can pretty much get there's, anything for a, like a stub toe, right? There, there's really not. Yeah, there's no. Condi- there's no. Con- it's like there's. I mean, there's it's open conditions basically. Yeah. So I mean, the the qualifying conditions are pretty broad. Correct. As I always say, it's a, it's loosely defined in Oklahoma on what's deemed the true qualifying condition. Um, are, is the craft really geared towards the adult use? So, it, yeah, it, I believe honestly. so. Yeah, yeah. When it comes okay. to that, when I'm, you know, especially working out there in Oklahoma, you know, there it, there's a lot of that going on. More there's that, and then there's you know, there's trying to sell it for the lowest sure. price possible. You can always go to New Mexico, you know, I mean, right? They, so, I mean, they have like these resorts along the border of New Mexico and Texas, which is I find pretty interesting. Um, as we're wrapping up, because we do, you know, there is a time, uh, there is uh, some some time considerations here. But is are there any last words that you want that uh, that you want to share um, for people who are listening to the episode about your past or about your business or about anything that you really want to share with us um, as kind of a last message for you? You know. Um... Being somebody who's a legacy operator and being somebody who's been at the front lines of the prohibition and going through that, I I think what I would, what I'm trying to do myself is I'm trying to merge and find people who don't have the same background as myself in history with cannabis but respect and want to work with people like myself because it's those people like you who don't have that background, but I feel that can complement somebody like myself who has a lot of the experience and has the drive and the ambition because there's, there's a lot of people out there like myself mm-hmm. and, and that want to be able to work with um, people who don't have that history. And I think that's what's going, The one of the transitional problems that I see going on in the space right now is, you know, legacy operators only want to work with legacy people. And, you know, and it's very few legacy operators working with real business uh, professionals that come from other industries. I'm one of those legacy operators that is that want to work with other people from other industries. 
but it also it's a two-way street it is and um you know and it's tough because you get those people coming in and they, it's very tough right yeah i know i in myself i uh i've only been in the industry for nine years not anywhere close to you right and even in the nine years that i've been in it i've seen it really evolve you know when i got into it i would go to conferences and it was a very dem de different demographic compared to I don't know, as of maybe three, four years ago, it started to evolve quickly. Right. So, um, hey, man, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, man. I, I really enjoyed having this conversation. I feel like we can have this conversation. Dude, time little... went by so much faster than what I thought. Like, I holy know. smokes, I thought there would be enough more enough more time to, to cover stuff. But, you know, hey, maybe that's another episode later on down that's the right. line. Yeah. <laughs> well, hey, man, um, thank you for being on the show, and I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks a lot, All Richard. Right. Thanks.